News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. There is a public inquiry going on in Nova Scotia right now, looking at what happened during Canada's deadliest mass shooting, where 22 people were killed. This was April 19th, thereabouts, 2020, so about two years ago. If you haven't been following along, you should be. Some of the details are hard to read about, but still those big questions remain. Why didn't the RCMP tell people their suspect was driving a replica police car when they knew soon after the shootings began? And in fact, in the most recent testimony, it turns out an RCMP officer even asked supervisors to alert the public. And she never got an answer on that. Joining us now to talk more about what we're learning is Greg Mercer, the Atlantic Canada reporter for the Globe and Mail newspaper. Greg, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit about these latest revelations that we're hearing that one of the RCMP officers who ended up also being a victim wanted to know, have we told the public about this this particular police replica car? Yeah, this is something that came out yesterday in the inquiry. Uh, uh, Constable Heidi Stevenson, who was also killed by the gunman, but two hours before he shot her, she went on her police radio and said, hey, have we told the public that this guy is driving an identical-looking RCP vehicle? Because people should be aware of this. She didn't get a response. The police waited at least an hour and a half before they began to tell people uh, that fact. And, and, and within another half an hour, she actually was in a collision with him, and he killed her in a shootout. Um, so another tragic detail, and, and yet again, another case of someone saying, hey, how come we're not sharing the information that we have. Right, and that was the morning after this whole killing spree had started too, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. They knew they knew around 10.30 p.m. on the Saturday night when this attack began. They knew his name. They knew the gunman was driving an identical-looking RCP vehicle. Multiple people told them that, credible witnesses, uh, and they withheld that information. At first, they didn't think it, they didn't believe it. They thought that perhaps these people were imagining things. Uh, And then they thought, well, maybe the gunman is already dead, so there's no need to alert the public. And then we learned that the supervisor for the the county, uh, the RCP district supervisor, didn't realize that the provincial alert system was even an option. He didn't know it existed. So a series of failures in this case. It certainly seems that way. Now, you were writing about this. By the way, the latest piece in the Global Mail was great on this. Tell me about what happened with the shooting at the fire hall. Yeah, so on this, the second day of the, of the attack, there's this frantic manhunt. The police realize he's not dead. They realize the gunman has escaped uh, and has continued his rampage. And, and they're now sort of scrambling around this rural part in, in central Nova Scotia trying to find him. Um, and in one case, the two police officers pulled up to a fire hall where people who had been evacuated from the community where the attack began were, were basically resting. And they began shooting at a safety coordinator who was standing outside the building trying to help residents. And the only reason they began shooting is because they saw a marked police vehicle there, which, which just shows how, how um, disorganized this, uh, this approach was. I mean, this man could have lost his life. He very narrowly uh, was shot. He ran inside and hid before the police realized that's not the killer. We have the wrong guy. Uh, so that came out yesterday. There's still a lot of anger in that community about, about that particular shooting incident. Right. It sounds like the firefighters who were at that fire hall are also pretty angry about that incident. 
Definitely. I mean, they, they, all they know is someone starts shooting at their building. Uh, so they cowered inside. They built a barricade. They said it was at least an hour before the Mounties came in and explained what had happened. They say they've never had a formal apology from the police. You know, sorry for shooting at, at you and, and for, you know, traumatizing you, um, you know, and, and for shooting at, a, at an innocent citizen who was just there trying to help people who had nothing to do with this attack but just was mistaken for the killer because he was wearing a vest that was similar to what the killer was wearing. That's unbelievable. Greg, it seems a lot of the details that are coming out on this really seem hard to believe. Like what has been the RCMP's response to what sounds like just total incompetence? Well, I mean, the, the, their biggest defense is that this was a, this was a very chaotic scene. Things were, were evolving rapidly and there's a lot of truth to that, right? I mean, in Port of, to pick where this began there were homes on fire there were 13 people killed a lot of crime scenes a lot of explosions i mean as this gunman left he, he was torching homes um so it was just kind of mass confusion and i have some sympathy for that argument but it's the decisions that came afterward that don't make as much sense on the second day um you know the rcp essentially are saying we did the best we could in a, in a very difficult chaotic situation but that's what the inquiry is trying to figure out is where were mistakes made and how can we change training and policy to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Right. And this is the inquiry that really the community had to fight for, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, pretty, pretty soon after this attack, there was an outcry in Nova Scotia, a lot of protests, you know, people took to the street saying, there's a lot of unanswered questions. We're not getting a full accounting from the police about what happened here and why this was able to go on as long as it did. Why were 22 people killed when, when we couldn't stop him at 13? Um, initially, the province said, we're not going to have a full inquiry. Uh, that was not a, good enough for, for families of victims. And they, they protested and eventually got an inquiry, which is now ongoing and has the power to subpoena and force witnesses to testify. So we're finally seeing that now. Okay, so what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, and where is this inquiry headed? So we, we still have weeks and weeks of hearings. Uh, there's still a lot of, uh, of evidence to be presented. Uh, tomorrow, they're going to focus on the, the last homicides and, and the, the gunman's final moments when he was shot dead at a gas station. And then they're going to get into the nitty-gritty of how did he get his weapons? How did he build his fake police car? How did he do this without detection? And why did police fail to follow up on complaints about this guy in the past, about, about his violence, about his threats, you know, and about this cache of illegal weapons that he had been, been storing? Right. Sounds like we're going to be talking to you again, Greg. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, happy to talk, and th- thanks for having me. Appreciate that coverage. That's Greg Mercer. He's the Atlantic Canada reporter at the Globe and Mail newspaper and has been covering uh, this shooting inquiry in Nova Scotia. Listen, if, if you haven't been following along, you, re- you really should do some reading on it because I, I was interested in this all along to find out what the heck happened. But this, the stories out of the last couple of days, the ones that Greg just described there, are just they're shocking in their detail. The shooting at the fire hall where they had evacuated residents because they were concerned about what was going on. There was chaos in the community. People were being shot. They didn't know what was happening. So the fire hall is supposed to be a safe place, right? So they evacuate residents to this fire hall for their safety. They have an emergency safety coordinator who is standing out front talking to a firefighter when two RCMP officers pull up and started shooting at them because they thought the emergency coordinator 
was the suspect, but no identification, no, like, what's happening here, nothing like that. I mean, it's just some of the details just kind of blow your mind with what was going on during this whole process. So, yes, we will definitely be checking back in with Greg Mercer for more details in the weeks ahead. Right now, we're going to talk about potentially finding you a new job. Maybe you've always wanted to be in some kind of law enforcement, but you weren't quite sure. Maybe you thought you didn't want to do it alone. Wouldn't it be great if you could do it with a buddy? Well, guess what? Metro Vancouver Transit Police would like to help you make that happen. To to talk about this new and kind of revolutionary way of doing things, our Janet Brown joins us now, our global news reporter. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you know, I think everybody would agree. There seems to be a lot of competition these days among municipal yes. police forces and the RCMP for new recruits. And not only new recruits, Simi, but officers with experience as well, because, of course, forces need both. Well, now the Metro Vancouver Transit Police Chief Dave Jones tells me he thinks he's come up with a really novel idea that will give his force perhaps an edge to make these new hires. What he's doing, Simi, is encouraging friends, as you say, to apply together and he says if they're accepted they will go to the police academy together the justice institute they will train together and they'll even be assigned to the same shift here's more of what he has to say well one of the things we've come to realize is that uh, first of all we work in partners and pairs within the transit police and when talking to some of the members you know they they really seem to enjoy kind of their their shift their shift I'm going to call partners, their teammates on the, on the shift and that. And then coming from a bit of a sports background as well, I came to realize that people like having mentors and friends around. And with the numbers we have in the transit police and the growth we're about to expect, this is something that we can actually do to encourage people to come together and continue working together. I mean, everyone has to meet the qualifications, but if you do, we're able to make that commitment that we can send you to the academy together. We can, uh, have you trained together, and then when you graduate, we can put you on the same shift. It isn't far-fetched. In fact, you know, a lot of what we see in policing is the same as we see in sports, is there's a team There's a team component. You know, both everyone has an individual role to play, but you're part of a team. And, you know, and the one thing we come to realize is, you know, a lot of people, especially you talk about youth and sports and that, you know, they're very committed to their, their teammates and their friends and their coaches in terms of it, you know, when they're able to enjoy it because there is a bit of a social atmosphere as well and a reliance on each other. And in today's world, as much as we are in a digital media and everyone talks or, te- or everyone texts together or use some app to communicate with each other, there is still this desire for human connection. And being able to do things with a friend, a lifelong friend, is something we think is just natural and something we're surprised hasn't been done before. Okay, so Janet, I'm I'm intrigued by this because it seems like a neat idea, but like, how much uptake do they think there will actually be as a result of this? Well, obviously, they're they're onto something good. They think, and you know, it's it's funny as as Dave was talking there, uh, my wheels were turning too in my head, and my my son who is coming to the end of his formal schooling, and who also plays hockey and other sports, you know, I hear him talking with his friends about them perhaps going in to law enforcement together as friends. And I've been hearing this for a couple of years among my son and his friends, which is interesting that Dave has sort of dialed into this mentality. You know, if you go, I'll go and we can go together and then, you know, maybe we'll encourage each other and it'll be really fun and, you know, we'll be successful together. And Dave was even talking about after they go into policing as as good friends that sometimes the these officers, they live in the same area. They're, they're families, 
live near each other. Their children grow up to, uh, together. So it's a real bond uh, among some of his members, he was telling me. So maybe this will resonate with a lot of young people, whether it will resonate with uh, people who have graduated, maybe have a bit of life experience, who knows? Um, I asked Dave, Simi, you know, what are you looking for in a, in a new recruit, in a young person? How old do you have to be to apply? What do you need under your belt? And here's what he told me. So, you know, the, the minimum age is 19, but generally, you know, police agencies are hiring people who are a little bit older than that, at least, uh, because it gives them some life experience and skills. So, you know, it's, I would say that, you know, the biggest thing police departments are looking for is that individual who shows a maturity, the common sense, you know, has some education, some volunteering behind them in terms of it. But like anything else, we're looking at the potential for the person. No one has to be thinking that they're going to be that superstar on day one. We're looking for that person who has that ability to grow and keep growing and learning as it happens. So, you know, I start to say to people, as soon as you're turning into that 20, age of 2021, 20, depending on your, what your background in life is, is the time to start looking at it. And, you know, and looking around as to, as to not only what you want to do, be a police officer, but where you would want to do it. Because there's a lot more to life than just going to work. It's the, it's the environment you're going to be in. And that's what we're trying to do here is to build a real team and kind of atmosphere with it by encouraging people who know each other already so they don't feel like strangers on day one to an organization. No matter how welcoming you are, when it's a bunch of new people, sometimes you get that little bit of hesitancy. Okay, so that's interesting. So it sounds like very much what they're trying to do is appeal to younger people with this, like a recognition that this new generation perhaps won't look for a job in the same way that older people would. It certainly sounds that way. And uh, uh, Jones says that he is going to need to hire 50 officers, Simi, over the next four years because, of course, the system, the SkyTrain system is expanding. It's going to be built out to Langley from Surrey. And then we've got the Broadway subway going to Arbutus, maybe going to UBC after that. So there's a lot of opportunities in the transit police. And we know transit police is not the only policing agency looking for new recruits and experienced officers. We have the Surrey Police Service out there recruiting. They were recently in Ottawa. We have the Vancouver Police Department looking to, to make more hires. And I recently saw a story too that applications to join the RCMP are down by nearly 50% and projected to only get worse over the coming years. So a lot of police agencies looking for a lot of people. So, you know, maybe it is a career option for some people, a lot of people to consider, Simi. Interesting. All right, Janet, thank you. Anytime. Thank you. That is Global News reporter Janet Brown talking about this new idea that Metro Vancouver Transit Police have come up with to try to recruit uh, people to their ranks. It's a tough job market out there, right? You need to get competitive if you want people to apply for jobs there. And they figured this is a good way to do it. Does that appeal to you? Would that make, do you think, somebody you know or perhaps you Want to apply for a job there? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. There are so many incentives right now to buy an electric vehicle. I mean, there's the price at the pump for one thing. Then there was the 2022 federal budget. It promised to extend the $5,000 purchase rebate on electric vehicles and to add $900 million of incentives and grants to build more charging stations. So the federal government is also going all in on having more people buy electric vehicles. They want, they have a, t- they have a target actually of one in five newly 
sold cars being zero emission by 2026. By 2030, they want that to rise by 60%. So do we have the ability to make all this happen? Is Do we have the current even charging infrastructure to make all of this happen? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is John Stonier, who's the past president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. John, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning. It really does feel like the the dawn of the era of the electric vehicle, doesn't it? Well, we were thinking that about 10 years ago, but it really is now. I think uh, it's really caught on. People's mindsets are now going, yes, electric's the way to go. Uh, and there's there's just a few people that aren't really convinced yet, but it's getting there. And high gas prices certainly are changing their minds. Okay, so what do you think, are we able to do this though? Like when you look at our infrastructure, can we do this? Can everybody buy an electric vehicle and have it work? Well, EVs are the easiest way for us to get off fossil fuels, but there are some challenges. First of all, on the infrastructure side, you want to be able to charge from home. So if you have a single family home, it's fairly easy to do that. But if you live in an apartment or a condo that isn't, hasn't been built in the last, say, five years, uh, you're likely not going to have any charging uh, facilities. That is a big roadblock to buying a car. You want to be able to charge it at home. That's where electric cars are charged. So there's two great programs in BC that are helping people to, to get that done. The EV Ready program, um, which can pay up to about uh, all in, say, $98,000. or about $600 a stall to get the, the charging infrastructure in, in place. And the second of all, uh, since January 1st, we have the low-carbon fuel standard, which now generates a tax or carbon credit that um, just last quarter is still nearing $500 a ton. That pencils out to about $1,000 a car if you drive 15,000 kilometers a year. That's how much it is. These are two huge incentives that are available in British Columbia that a lot of people don't know about still. Right. And also, what about just building more charging stations, too? I know the city of Vancouver has kind of talked about this, about ways to, well, provide more incentive to make that happen. Don't we need that? We, we do, uh, but we really want to focus on people charging at home. When you charge at home, you don't need to charge anywhere else. But, we, but for the other side of charging is when you're traveling intercity. So that's the public charging infrastructure. That's the real purpose of public charging is so that you can travel anywhere you want to go in the province and be able to, to charge up in a fairly short period of time, the amount of time it takes to get a coffee, have a refreshment break, that sort of thing. Now, that is, uh, we've got a fairly good network across BC and across Canada right now. You can drive across Canada, and it's, uh, you know, every 50, 100K, there's, there's stations available. But the problem is, um, uh, peak period, like any other time, Friday afternoons, Sunday afternoons when the, when the rush is happening, uh, then we're going to have some terrific problems. So we do need to build out that infrastructure. And then to back up all the charging infrastructure, we need to have the power system to, to deliver that. Um, that's a big concern. Uh, again, electrification of cars is fairly easy because charging happens at home overnight. We can shift our demand loads to the middle of the night, and that really doesn't affect the system all that much. It has to generate more energy, but uh, here in BC, we have lots of opportunities to do that. Right. But again, as you're saying, that has to be done at home. You want people to charge in the middle of the night. They're not going to do it at a public charging station. Absolutely not. You want to do it at night. You set your timer, you know, and uh, and it's really easy. You wake up in the morning, your car is ready to go. Okay. Are we close to that, though? Is that like, doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to be where the incentives lie, though, John. The incentives 
for getting people's, uh, the incentives in BC are heavily stacked towards getting condos and apartment blocks um, uh, in for infrastructure. And that's the real, that's where it really needs to happen. The incentives from the low carbon fuel standard actually incentivize all of the networks to the charging networks to set up uh, their chargers in public places. They, it's a significant amount of money that they can generate back from carbon credits. And that's here, you know, that's unique to BC. So there are good incentives in place, better than anywhere else in the country, and I'd say better than anywhere else in the world right now. Such interesting stuff. All right, John, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. That is John Stonier, who's the past president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. And it does feel like we are kind of on the precipice of this new era of having way more electric vehicles than we've ever had before. But the ability, as John points out, to charge at home is going to be what makes the difference. If you want to weigh in on that, simi at cknw.com. Let's update you now on the Gastown fire situation. We know that five people have been hospitalized after that fire broke out in one of the oldest, if not the oldest, building in the Gastown area. Now, a lot of people are also left homeless as a result of this. We're going to talk more about what we can do to help. Joining us now is Sarah Blythe, advocate for the Downtown East Side and Executive Director for the Overdose Prevention Society. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. So first off, what do we know right now about how the residents are doing? Has everybody found a place to stay? Yeah, I know that... um that Atira and BC Housing and the City of Vancouver are, uh, you know, obviously planning it out and there's been a lot of empty spots for people to go. So people have, I think, made it mostly to housing and shelter uh, at this time. But um, obviously, it's a very stressful situation for everyone. And, um, and, and people don't have anything anymore. A lot of things burned down and and, uh, you know, that people lost their stuff, which is a terrible thing. It is. So how can we help? What, what can we provide? Yeah, so uh, mainly just things that everyone needs, like uh, men and women's clothing, uh, any kind of pet supplies, beds for pets, um, beds, you know, bedding for people, uh, just anything to sort of help people start up a new life in a new place. And um you can donate those and send them to or bring them down to Betty's Boutique at Maine in Cordova, or you can do it, uh, bring it to um, Melanie Marks constituency office at first and commercial, if that's more convenient for people. Um, But yeah, just bring some, bring whatever you have down, anything extra blankets, things that you think you would need if you lost everything. And, uh, and people will really appreciate it. I mean, yesterday, a lot of people were bringing things down and, uh, you know, people are really appreciative considering they've lost everything. And it, it just shows that we care about people and, uh, and that we, you know, that we want to help when we do that. Right. It, so the response yeah. has been good then so far? Yeah, the response has been good. People have been really helping out. But, of course, there's a lot of people that need help. So as much help as possible um, would be great. Just getting people started in new places. So right. uh clothing, things like that. What kind of, so this building was a single room occupancy building. Was it for people in certain situations or was it for everybody? Will there be enough sort of direct help for people then? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure it was social housing, um, just single room occupancy. um, And, uh, and I'm, and I'm positive that people 
have gone out of their way. I've spoken to Janice Abbott from Atira and she told me that everyone should have a place to stay and that they've um, been diligently working to find every last person who, who's been affected, a place to live, and um, BC Housing has found spots for folks. So I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, people are going to get housing. It's just that they may need things like clothing and, and, and the other things that they've lost. Right. Also, just yeah. uprooting your whole life like that when you do have a stable place is incredibly uh, difficult. And what about the loss of this building as social housing? Is that going to have an impact? Oh, yeah. I mean, every time we, we lose uh, social housing, it's a huge impact. It just means that um, there's a bunch more spaces that have, you know, that people are taking that could have gone to homeless people. Um, you know, but at the same time, um, it's a it's a definite tragedy and we need to, uh, you know, just move, I guess, move forward. And, yeah. and, and but obviously, you know, we don't have enough housing for people. And so hopefully there's more pressure to, to build more housing for people down here. So, okay, Sarah, once again, then how, what can, what can we provide and where should we bring it? Okay, so you can mostly men and women's clothing, everybody lost their, their clothing and all of their items. Um, pet supplies is always great, you know, for, for some of the pets uh, that have been, you know, displaced. Um, you can bring it to Betty's Boutique at Maine and Cordova or commercial and first at Melanie Marks constituency office. All right, we will do that. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Okay, thank you. Debbie Carew joins us now, CEO and founder of Inspired HR Limited. Debbie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Do you think employees are more in the driver's seat now? Without a doubt. Even going into the pandemic, there was a war for talent and sort of a mismatch of skills that the workplace had and what, what employers were needing. And so now more than ever, we've got this war for talent and people have learned with the great reset and the great resignation that everyone's got options on where they can work. And a lot of people are voting with their feet. Is that what we're calling it now? The great reset, the great resignation? (laughs) (laughs) There's so many terms for it, but the good news is, is we're starting to see a slowdown in what we were calling the great resignation. And so now I do sort of call it more the great reset because now we're thinking about how do we get workplaces to be enticing so people want to come back and enjoy collaborating and innovating with other people and this is a very different thing because we can't go back to pre-pandemic norms. And so there's a lot of things to figure out in the workplace. Right. Now, I know at the beginning we thought, oh, this is going to change the workplace forever. Why would anybody go back? But wouldn't you say, Debbie, have companies also learned that there is some value in having a workplace culture? Without a doubt. So we're seeing a few things. Employers, when I talk to CEOs across the province, they want their employees back. They're feeling the lack of connection the culture is not quite as strong. No matter how good you are on Zoom calls, there's only so many social hours you can have on Zoom. And that impromptu water cooler chat or walking over to someone's desk to pick their brain, some of those things really get missed. So it really is a dilemma because you've got 80% of workers saying, we've proven we can work from home effectively and we kind of want to stay this way. And then the vast majority of CEOs are saying, no, 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 I want everyone back. And so I think where we're going to land the happy place is going to be a hybrid workplace of about, I suggest, three days, a work, three days a week in the office and two days from home. It's where I think most organizations will land. Is that something that you think appeals to employees? 
I think it appeals much more than not at all. And when you look at the younger generation, so the Gen Z and the millennials of the world, they're actually more often saying they really want to come back into the office because they want that mentorship. They want that face time. They haven't necessarily had that corporate experience where they get to put on their suits or their high heels and get to dress up and actually feel what it's like to be in a corporate environment. And they're really feeling like they're missing out on that. So there's a large chunk of the future future leaders out there that really want that office experience. And I think that's important too. And David, do you think, is it incumbent for employee, for companies here now to also think about making that workplace um, a better, more engaging place for their employees? Yeah, and we're starting to see a lot of the progressive employers do exactly that. I love this concept where they kind of stole from Starbucks and they're saying, they want the office to be the third place for people to connect. So you actually want to come there. And so whether it's to collaborate with people in an office where you've got a social setting where you've got couches and places where it feels like a coffee shop or fitness centers where people interact, finding reasons for people to come to the office and want to be together is what employers are finding is going to draw them back. And I know here recently Hootsuite just redid their offices with that in mind. And I think even pre-pandemic, when you look at the Telus Garden building, a lot of people would just go and work in the coffee shop in Telus Garden because they knew in Vancouver it was a great place where they could socialize and just feel the energy of being around other people. And so people are definitely missing that and employers are recognizing that. Okay, let me play devil's advocate here for a second. What about the issue of productivity? We're talking about making the workplace this great, friendly place to hang out and talk to other employees, but what about productivity? I'm so glad you asked this question. So the data shows for most jobs, not all, during the pandemic, productivity was higher than ever with people working from home. But there's a big caveat there is there are huge rates of burnout and mental health issues from people working too much. And we also know that that level of productivity is not sustainable and not realistic because when pandemic happened, people didn't have social schedules, their kids didn't have activities. And so the default would be people would go to their home office and they would never disconnect. And so the productivity data during the the COVID era, I don't believe is accurate or sustainable. Okay. So then if somebody were looking to perhaps find another job, if they are part of that kind of great reset, then what kind of questions should they be asking their employer? Well, I think the most important too, if you're, when you're looking for your employer is flexibility is number one. I mean, one of the, the great lessons that have been learned is Golden Sachs a few weeks ago, uh, probably a month ago now, decided to recall their workers back to work with a, a, not a huge amount of notice. And they said, okay, we want all 10,000 of you to come back into the office on X date. On X date, only 50% of their workers showed up. So they really sent a message to the employer. And so that flexibility becomes key. And the other one is communication. If if employers want people in the office, they need to be really clear on why it's important. And not just why it's important for the employer. What is the employee going to get out of it? So whether it's going to be learning and development, which is a key for retaining people, whether it is going to be that social interaction, innovation, career progression, there's got to be a value proposition for the employees as well. Um, or they are, they're truly going to, the default is going to be for 80% of people, no, I want a job from home. And the job boards show that actually, it's an interesting data point, is jobs that actually are posted today that say flexibility, remote, work from home, are getting seven times more applications than an in-office job. So employers can't discount that fact either. Well, that is a big stat. All right. Well, listen, Debbie, thanks so much for that this morning. Thanks for having me.
That's Debbie Curry, who's the CEO and founder of Inspired HR Limited, talking about the ways in which employers are having to, well, reshift what they think about the workplace and where they want their employees to work might not always mesh up with how the employee would like to do their job. Would love to hear if this has been an issue with your job and where you work. Did your employer have to entice you to come back to the workplace? Were they flexible? Did they offer you things that you hadn't been offered pre-pandemic? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com.